Hey Cole, I hope you're hungry, because this week I'm talking about the movie Yummy. Welcome to Second to Die, the horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Cole. I'm Max. And to be clear, I'm always hungry. Constantly. We were talking just before we started recording about how excited I was that I get to have ice cream afterwards. But before we get to your movie, let's talk about the horrifying care package that my sister sent me. Um, all right, I guess we can talk about that, but I feel like talking about it gives it power. Uh, I mean, it probably already listens to us sleep. Anyway, so my sister, who is one of the hosts of the Dark Rose Pod, just bought her first house. And underneath her new house was just like boxes and suitcases full of terrifying things. And she found a lot of weird vintage toys under there. And she sent me this weird, like, monkey doll thing. Kind of a doll. It's big. It's like a foot and a half tall. Yeah, I mean, this is the size of a small child. Yeah, it's the size of a toddler. And it has wheels. And when you push it, the arms and legs move. And his head turns back and forth. I feel like he originally had a string on him and there's like a speaker on his chest. So I think he used to make noise. I don't know, but I named him Lefty because he has some weird shit on his left hand. We'll post a picture on the Instagram, but I'm pretty sure he watches us sleep at night. Well, it's kind of weird because the room that you have him in right now, his, his so his eyes don't look forward. They look to the side. And when you walk into that room, which basically is walking into it from our bedroom, the eyes are looking at you as you walk into that room. It's real creepy. Yeah, well, there's not really anywhere else to put. Where else do you put a monkey? In a consecrated box somewhere, I guess. Or salt it and burn it. But I haven't really been having nightmares per se, so I'm sure it's totally fine. Yeah, he's just waiting a little bit before he whispers in your ear while you sleep. Yeah, I saw Annabelle. It all worked out fine in the end. God. All right. Tell me about Yummy. Uh, Okay. So Yummy is a film. It's a pretty recent film. It came out in 2019. It's a Belgian film directed by a Dutch director named Lars. And I'm probably going to butcher this, but I believe it is Demoiseau. It has a very French spelling to it. So I'm going to go with Lars Demoiseau. It's D-A-M-O-I-S-E-A-U-X. And it stars a few people. The four main ones are Micah Neuville plays Allison. These are all Dutch names, by the way. And I I do know how to pronounce a lot of them. But uh, yeah. So it's Dutch actors in a Belgian film. Yeah, I'm not sure. I thought it was a Dutch film at first, but when I looked it up, it said it's a Belgian film, which maybe it was, I don't know, filmed or produced by Belgian producers or maybe filmed in... What what language was it in? Because Belgium has like three languages. Yeah, so it's kind of weird and I'll get into it in a little bit, but there is a good amount of Dutch that is subtitled in English because the three main characters... I believe are supposed to be from the Netherlands. And then the whole plot is that they go to this clinic in quote unquote, Eastern Europe. I don't know. I guess the country of Eastern Europe, it's supposed to be this sort of indescript Eastern European country where the language resembles sort of Polish or Czech or something like that. And so there are people that speak in this language. I don't actually know if it's a real language. They don't subtitle it. And the way that it's used is sort of the clinic staff will speak to each other in this language and you don't understand what they're saying. But that's the point is it's supposed to have this sort of feeling of I'm in this foreign country and I can't tell what these doctors are saying to each other vibe. But then when everyone speaks to each other, because obviously those people aren't from the Netherlands, they speak English to each other. Interesting. 
Well, in Belgium, the three most common languages spoken there are French, German, and Dutch. So I guess that makes sense. Yeah. So I think that they're mostly speaking Dutch. And I don't know whether they're intended to be from the Netherlands or from Belgium. I guess it could be either, to be honest. I just know that the director himself was born in the Netherlands. And I didn't look up where the actors are from, but they definitely have Dutch names. Yeah. So the film has Allison and Michael, who are the main couple, and they're played by... Allison is played by Micah Neuville, and Michael is played by Bart Hollanders. And then there's this great clinic nurse named Yanya, and I think she's supposed to be from whatever Eastern European country they end up in. And her she's played by Clara Clemens, and then there's this other guy who has a big part. His name is Daniel, and he's played by Benjamin uh, Raymond. So those are the main characters. There's a few other ones as well, but those are the ones that I'll be talking about the most. And yeah, this movie was pretty good and kind of weird. It's a zombie movie and it has a little bit of a twist. Maybe not enough, to be honest, for my particular taste, but I didn't hate this movie. And I'll also preface this review by saying that there will be spoilers, obviously, because I always talk about plot and spoilers. But I think for this one, because it is so new and it is definitely worth watching, I'm actually not going to give away the ending to it. So I'll leave that for people who want to watch it because I don't think anything I'm talking about right now or will talk about is going to spoil this movie. I think it's just going to be entertaining and maybe we'll make you want to see it. And then you can tell me the ending, but cut it out when you do the editing. (laughs) I'll tell you the ending. Because I'll want to know. I'll tell you the ending. I liked it and it's not a typical ending, which is why I don't want to give it away. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's it's nice. It's worth watching. And I will also say that the tagline for this movie on the cover of it... Oh, I love taglines. ...is facelifts, boob jobs, and zombies. Three perfectly related things. Exactly. So to give you a little bit of a preface of the plot, the whole start of the plot is that Allison has gigantic breasts and wants to get a breast reduction and apparently has to go to Eastern Europe for it in whatever country this is because it's cheaper there, which is funny because healthcare in Europe in general is way cheaper than in the States. So yeah. I wonder if Europe treats breast reduction as elective surgery just like U.S. insurance companies do. Yeah. I think that's pretty typical with American insurance companies. <laughs> I don't actually know exactly how elective surgeries work in Europe. I mean, obviously, you know, I've spent some time over there. And everything that I ever had to go to a doctor for was pretty, like, normal and and not severe. And so everything seems super cheap to me. But I do wonder. Maybe it's... um. Maybe it's expensive to get something like a plastic surgery done. But she does have giant, giant breasts. And uh, so she's going to this clinic to get a breast reduction. And she's going with her boyfriend, Michael, at the time. And also their mother is accompanying them. And their mother... Wait, wait, whose mother? Allison, I'm sorry. You keep saying there and I'm like, you just added a whole new layer to this movie that I wasn't expecting. No, it's not that kind of a film. I am from the panhandle. It feels like home. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no. It's Allison's mother, and she is in the backseat, and basically, she is accompanying them because she figures that while Allison is getting her breast reduction, she'll get a tummy tuck and a facelift. So she's going with them, and she's hypercritical all the time. She's super critical of Michael because I guess she doesn't think that He's good enough for Allison. Allison is very pretty. The actress who plays her is stunningly beautiful. And they purposefully, I think, cast somebody who's not quite as attractive to play Michael to get that effect. Yeah. It also comes out very quickly through this sort of roadkill scene that Michael has hemophobia, which, of course, is a fear of blood. Mm -hmm. So he vomits and gets lightheaded to the side of blood. And he also was studying to be a doctor, but his hemophobia is what prevented him from actually being able to continue. I feel like that's something that you learn about yourself long before you had to study to be a doctor, but carry on. 
Yeah, he probably should have thought about that. Also, there are certain types of doctors that aren't really going to have to be exposed to that much blood. No, but I think you do like general studies in med school. Yeah. But it's like, I knew not to go to school to be a scientist who studies spiders. Like, that was established. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that path was closed off for you. So anyways, they get to this clinic. It's called Clinica Krascheck, which they say how it's spelled in the movie because there's subtitles. And it's basically like a lot of K's and Y's and consonants with no vowels. So it's just this very Eastern European vibe to it. And they get there to have this surgery done. And immediately, Michael thinks that there's something kind of weird about this because they open up an operating room and one of the surgeons is drinking a cup of coffee and Michael's like, I don't think you're supposed to be able to drink coffee in operating rooms. And they're kind of like dismissive of him. So this other guy, Daniel, who has this sort of alternative vibe, tattooed bleach hair, he is employed by the hospital. It comes out later that all he does is take people to the airport. So he's kind of like an errand person. They basically tell Daniel, take Michael on a tour of the hospital so that he's out of the way so that Allison can have her surgery. It all goes very quickly between her getting there and there's some jokes made about her boobs and some comments about them. And But at the end of the day, they start trying to prep her for surgery and Michael is kind of freaking out about it because he's thinking that this clinic is kind of weird. And so they have Daniel go take Michael for a little romp around the clinic and it's this giant building. And so they're kind of walking through it. And then he finds this naked girl with a face mask strapped to a bed and decides, I don't know, for some reason he's going to help her. So he undoes the face mask and she's got no lips. Well, okay. That escalated quickly. I mean, to be completely honest, I was expecting, I wasn't expecting him to have helpful thoughts. And I'm glad that he did, but I was not expecting the uh, the liplessness. Anyway, carry on. I'm so sorry. Yeah, so probably no blowjobs from, for her, but and she's also very clearly sort of a zombie. Anyone familiar with zombie films is going to kind of recognize it. Her eyes are kind of... Well, so here's the thing. Her eyes are kind of like whited out as they do, but apparently that doesn't deter him from taking this mask off her face. And so she starts, like, chomping at the air like a hungry, hungry hippo. And he runs away. But he doesn't put the face mask on her. He just bolts. So now she's, like, lipless with no face mask. So she chews through her bindings and she gets out. And that's how the whole movie starts. Wait, how is she that flexible? She's real thin. So she just kind of... Plus, she, like, shimmies down and... Well, so it's those, like cuff things that sort of strap you to a hospital gurney and so there's a little bit of give to them like she can kind of raise them a little bit okay for some reason i was picturing like a leather band across her chest a leather band across her waist a leather band across her knees and i was like how did she get down to it that makes a lot more sense yeah and i think she might have a band across her waist but there's enough give where she can kind of raise her wrist to her mouth and then once her hands are free she's good to go yeah so she chomps through that and then It begins like you would think any zombie movie would begin. And so she's chasing people. There's huge panic. They decide that they have to evacuate the hospital. There's lots of scenes about people running and stairs. To be honest, some of this movie, the movie was good. I'll say that. Some of this movie I did get a little bored with because I had that sense of I've seen this before. Maybe not in the hospital sense, but... Actually, maybe so, because I feel like Resident Evil has some hospital scenes. But I got a little bit bored. The good thing about this movie is that... I can't believe you're shrugging when I say Resident Evil. Because I know you haven't seen it. Never seen it. (laughs) The good thing about this movie is I think it can kind of sense that it needs to come up with something interesting. And so it intersplices a few scenes that are really entertaining that I'm going to talk about. In order to sort of break up the monotony of this is just a zombie movie. And so this is why I really did appreciate this movie. Aside from the ending, which is fine. So for example, I'll give you a couple of these scenes. I'm going to save the best for last. Because it is by far like the apex of the movie for me. I'm so excited. (laughs) So in one of the scenes, and this is to give you an idea of sort of the type of stuff that they put in here. Which is why I think it's worth watching. And I will say that some 
sites and review sites describe this as a horror comedy, it is not really a comedy. It's not funny. It just has some funny moments in it. When I think horror comedy, I think a little bit more like Shaun of the Dead, like that kind of a thing. Scary movie. Scary movie, like where the whole thing is a joke. Yeah. This is definitely not. This is actually super gory. This film is very gory. Not to the level where it's like torture porn, but to which, you know, I don't like that much. No. But to a level where it's just good old zombie gore. And I'll also preface all of this by saying that I love zombies and always have. I mean, as you know, my mother used to give me a zombie calendar literally every Christmas so that I would have a calendar for the year. Yes. So I've always loved zombies. And so that type of gore I can get behind. So anyway, there's one point where they're running and they run into this room that clearly hasn't gotten the memo that the hospital is being zombie infested and they need to get out. And they're doing liposuction on a guy and there's this giant tank of fat and then a zombie comes in and so there's a struggle and somebody accidentally clicks it to reverse, which is probably completely unbelievable. So it starts pumping this person full of fat and ultimately results in them running out of the room, closing the door, and then this giant explosion of fat hits the door. Like, the guy just exploded from all this fat being pumped back into his belly. Oh, I thought it was being sprayed around the room. It was, like, reverse... Oh, gross. Into him. Ugh. So he didn't make it. Oh, God. He blew up like a fat balloon. Yeah. There's also this really great scene where... And I'm actually very shocked that I personally have not seen this done in a zombie movie. And I've seen a lot of zombie movies where they run past and it's this woman, but she's a torso and her insides, like her digestive tract is exposed and she's picking up the pieces of herself and eating herself and it's immediately digesting it and like going through her and then she's re-eating it and she's like loop eating herself. It's really disgusting, but also really, really fascinating to watch. You look stunned right now. That, oh boy. Yeah. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, and she's like dripping bile out of her insides. It's pretty great. She then also does this thing where she (laughs) chases them afterwards, but she's got no legs. So she's doing this like running torso with their hands thing. I don't know. It made me laugh. I don't know why. But- these little like snippet parts are kind of what sort of break up the movie a little bit. I'll also mention at this time that the mother had had her tummy tuck. So she, they go and like find her at some point and have to like wheel her around because she had just come out post-surgery and is sort of in a daze. Yeah. Anyway, now's the time where I talk about my favorite scene in this movie, which also brings me to a character that was kind of dumb, but he's needed for the scene. There's this guy, and he, I think his name is William. He's supposed to be this sort of has-been-burnt-out famous singer. And he's gotten fat and gross. And so he's at the clinic, originally talking about liposuction, but then come to find out that he also had a penis enlargement. And how do we find this out? Because he has a scene where he's in the room with this side character named Oksana, And she is this very, very pretty young girl. And she realizes that they're probably going to die. And so she turns to him and is like, I don't want to die a virgin. and so Which is like, okay, girl. And so she decides that she doesn't want to die a virgin. So she wants to have sex with this singer. And keep in mind, I kind of downplay how famous he's supposed to be in this movie. When people walk by him in the clinic, they all see him and recognize him. So he's supposed to be, like, a big deal. Okay. So she wants to have sex with him, and he basically is like, okay, but you have to be very gentle. And she's like, what? And he's like, I had a penis enlargement, just a little enlargement, and I'm not supposed to, but I think if we're very gentle. And he, like, unbandages his penis, and I'll say this. For this scene, they're showing like an actual, it's probably a prosthetic, but it's like an actual penis that they keep showing, like that he's like unwrapping this penis. And so he unbandages it and he's like, let me just clean it up. So he goes to clean his dick off in the sink, like you do. And the water is super hot for some reason. So he like scalds his dick. So he's like, oh, it it burns, it burns. 
And so she goes, well, here, this is, she grabs a tube and goes, here, this is burn cream. So he starts rubbing it on his penis and, and he's like, what is this? It smells really weird. And keep in mind, the power has gone out at this point. So he's holding the tube up and she lights a match so that they can read the tube. And <laughs> from the fumes, apparently, whatever this cream was, it doesn't say, his dick ignites because of the cream. <laughs> oh, my God. It gets better. How? <laughs> because so he's freaking out because his dick is on fire. As you would. So she grabs a fire extinguisher and just like starts fucking ex- extinguishing his dick. And so the, then after the dick is completely extinguished, it's all white with the stuff. But that stuff is also very cold. So then he's like... I can't feel anything. I can't feel anything. And he touches it. And the tip of his dick falls off and hits the floor with a thud. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. So then he picks up the tip of his dick. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. It keeps going. (laughs) Well, yeah. Yes, it's almost over. So then he picks up the tip of his dick and is like, I need to find a doctor. And he runs out the door and is pretty promptly killed by zombies. So that's a great scene. That's a lot. Oh my god, it's so good. So that was my favorite scene in the movie. And I guess that obviously is funny, but it also was, I don't know, just pure entertainment. That's what I'll say. Pure entertainment. So anyways, so then we flash to the rest of the cast who is doing okay, except that Allison's mother has been bitten by a zombie. So the doctor is like, we're going to have to kill her. Yeah, just throw the whole mom out. Yeah, exactly. And Allison doesn't necessarily want to do that, but he's like, there's no other choice. And then the mother coughs up blood into the doctor's face and they're like, well, now you're infected. And the doctor's like, well, hold on, before we do anything drastic, let me see if I can make a cure. (laughs) Changing his tune awful fast, I see. Yeah, so there's kind of this sort of struggle to come up with a cure. In the end, they just end up killing the doctor. And then they kill the mother. And then they all basically try to run out of the hospital. They eventually make it to the roof because apparently that's where you go when you're being chased by zombies is like the place where it's almost the most difficult to escape. And the roof has this sort of connector to the adjacent building or it's an adjacent part of the hospital. And it looks like a little beam, but it's made out of metal, but it's not very wide and it has no handrails. So of course there's going to be this perilous scene where they have to cross it. But the only reason I bring it up, it's not that interesting, is because when Yanya, the sexy cool nurse, crosses it, she keeps her heels on for it. So she's like crossing this beam in full heels and she does just fine. But, oh, I forgot to mention. The doctor, during the whole thing about killing the mother and stuff, gets his arm bitten. And this is the second doctor. He gets his arm bitten and he's like, cut it off before the infection spreads. And they grab the axe to cut it off. But then the head of the axe falls off and they're like, oh shit. So he panics but needs to get his arm off. And in a very unrealistic, but very satisfying moment, sticks his hand into a paper shredder, turns it on, and goes basically shoulder deep into this paper shredder to amputate his arm. It is a wild scene. This movie, man. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's so gory. I mean, there is just blood and guts everywhere, but in, like, the best of ways. I mean, if if gore has a purpose, I enjoy a lot of gore. Yeah, and it's, there are some moments that are hard to watch gory, but a lot of it is just really entertaining gory. So they're on the roof trying to cross. And the reason I bring up that whole incident with the paper shredder is because that doctor tries to cross, but he's only got one arm and he's not used to it. So he can't keep his balance because arms keep balance. So he ends up falling and dying. Everyone else makes it across. Why don't? Every single time that I see a scene where people are crossing a narrow expanse i don't understand why they don't just kneel and crawl your center of gravity is much lower i guess it's just not as suspenseful yeah that's true i've thought about that as well i'm not sure to be honest i think that it would be better it's hard to think because you know i 
have a huge fear of heights. Yes. So I don't know what I would do. I almost feel like if I were crawling, I might be even like more paralyzed, but maybe not. Maybe I would feel more comfortable. That would probably make more sense. I don't even know. I don't know that I would even do it. Although I guess if it was get eaten by zombies or try to cross this thing, it's not that long. It's not like this like 20 foot thing. It's maybe like eight feet. Oh, okay. So it doesn't take a long time to get across it. He just loses his balance because he's newly one armed. I am sorry if Yanya can strut across that beam in her heels, he can handle it. Yeah, she does great. So they get across. There's kind of a little bit of a reveal that I'm not going to talk about until afterwards when I'll explain to you the rest of this movie. Mm -hmm. There is one scene I will say that was one of the more difficult things to watch. And I don't know why, because... You can see people, like, eating themselves, and that's totally fine. I think it has to do with a level of realism. But there's one point where they end up kind of in sort of the sewer system trying to get out. And Allison sort of reaches up on a sewer grate. But there's kind of been this military response to this hospital situation. Yeah. And a military vehicle rolls over the sewer grate and, like, parks on her hand. And she's stuck. With her fingers being crushed. And basically, Michael pulls out a pocket knife and saws her fingers off. And that scene was hard to watch. Yikes. Yeah, so then her fingers are all soon, like, gone. Also, worth noting, so Michael can do this because he, as I mentioned, he went to med school but then dropped out. But then it's revealed at some point that he only went there for a year And it's funny to me that he's like, I'm going to saw off your fingers. I know how to do this. I went to med school. First of all, I don't think they teach you how to saw off fingers in med school. And if they do, I don't think they teach you it in the first year. And if they do, I'm pretty sure they don't teach you how to do it with this little pocket knife situation. And whatever happened to him, like, passing out at blood. Yeah, that, weirdly enough, sort of goes away a little bit through. I think it's that he starts to just see so much of it that maybe his body, there's just no way. You just get a little desensitized. Yeah. I mean, there's so much blood. He just, he does vomit a couple times in the movie. Yeah. But yeah, that they kind of do away with that. But I think it's funny because him mentioning med school reminds me of a lot of people who like went to school for some random thing and then suddenly become experts and everything. And it had that kind of a vibe to it. But it's funny because there's one point where... Daniel's talking to him. This is before all this, but Daniel's talking to him and he's explaining something about procedures at the hospital. And Michael goes, yeah, you know, I did go to med school. And Daniel goes, oh yeah, for like five minutes. Don't worry. The doctors here actually finished their studies. (laughs) So he's like, just like spilling the tea on him. Anyway, so they're going through this sewer thing and then some stuff happens. I'm not going to talk about and... Then the ending of the movie. That is very close to the ending of the movie. There's probably only maybe six or seven minutes left in it. And then you find out what happens to Michael, Allison, and Daniel. All of them, respectively, within within that time. So, and then also it kind of comes out that this virus... It's, it's kind of a side point, so I don't mind talking about it. It was kind of manufactured in this hospital. This, I thought, was kind of dumb because I don't feel like it's that original where... They were doing research trying to find sort of anti-aging serums and stuff. But I feel like that line for zombie movies is not original. So I didn't talk about it that much. And yeah. And so the reason that the movie is called Yummy. I don't know why this is my wrap up. But it is. Is because when Daniel is talking about the clinic. He basically tells Michael that one of the perks of him working there is that he gets to sleep with a lot of the girls because after their surgery, their plastic surgery, they wake up feeling all yummy and sexy. And that's the only time the word yummy is mentioned in the movie, which is where I think it's from. And then also, obviously, because zombies are eating people, so it's yummy. Oh, boy. That, oh. It's good, though. It's really well done. Obviously, it's a more modern movie, so it's... Not cheesy at all. There's nothing cheesy about it. But the scenes are so entertaining that describing them honestly probably does not do them justice. It is very, very much so worth a watch. Like I said, there is some boring parts in the middle during the chases. I'm not particularly fond of chase scenes, as I talked about last episode, and I'll mention it again. 
I think a lot of times chases are too drawn out. And there's only so many times where you can run through a hospital hallway and throw a gurney in front of a door and then the zombie still is able to get through it until I'm over that. But the little sort of snippets that they interspliced definitely made it worth it. And I would definitely say you should see this. And like I said, it doesn't end like you would expect some of these movies to end. And so I'd recommend it. It's It also gets, I think it's got like a 70% of Rotten Tomatoes, which for a zombie flick is pretty high. I mean, it's actually high for any movie, but especially for a zombie flick. I would definitely say go give this one a try if you can. It's it's worth a watch. Awesome. So yeah, that's yummy. Tell me what you're going to talk about. Okay, so the book I'm going to talk about this week, I'm super excited about. But I will go ahead and start off by saying it's a very recent book. And it's a very popular recent book. So spoilers ahead. I know a lot of people who like reading horror fiction have this on their to-be-read lists. If you are planning on reading this, I won't blame you if you don't listen to my segment until after you have read it. That said, this week I'm doing The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix. One of your favorites. (laughs) Who you may remember from my best friend's exorcism two weeks ago. (laughs) And actually, it is also set in Charleston. And while none of the characters from my best friend's exorcism show up, the main character is next door neighbors with the family of the girl who was possessed. Oh, okay. So they're linked. It's in the same world. Yes. It's in the same world. It's in the same neighborhood of Charleston, but none of the characters from exorcism show up at all whatsoever. But anyway, it was published in April of this year. So it was a quarantine book and I just got an ebook of it from the library Uh, The cover, unlike My Best Friend's Exorcism, the cover is actually very, very simple, but I really like it. It's just two peaches, and one of them has, like, bloody vampire bites on it. Yeah, I like that cover. It kind of looks retro to me. And before people cry out and are like, oh, but it's Charleston, and Georgia is the peach state. South Carolina produces twice as many peaches, so peach state my ass. Wait, so is this book... Also in the 80s or after that? It's in the early 90s. Okay. Like 1990, early 90s. Okay. So it's kind of like where My Best Friend's Exorcism was this big homage to the 80s. Southern Book Club is very much so an homage to the 90s. Okay, I got it. There's a lot of references to 90s fashion. There's a lot of like neon colored windbreakers. I have one when I was a child. So, oh, so let me go ahead and read you the blurb. It's a little long. So I will read it kind of quickly. Patricia Campbell's life has never felt smaller. Her husband is a workaholic. Her teenage kids have their own lives. Her senile mother-in-law needs constant care. And she's always one step behind on her endless to-do list. The only thing keeping her sane is her book club, a close-knit group of Charleston women united by their love of true crime. At these meetings, they're as likely to talk about the Manson family as they are about their own families. One evening, after book club, Patricia is viciously attacked by an elderly neighbor, bringing the neighbor's handsome nephew, James Harris, into her life. James is well-traveled and well-read, and he makes Patricia feel things that she hasn't felt in years. But when children on the other side of town go missing, their deaths written off by the local police, Patricia has reason to believe that James Harris is more of a Bundy than a Brad Pitt. The real problem? James is a monster of a different kind, and Patricia has already invited him in. Little by little, James will insinuate himself into Patricia's life and try to take everything she took for granted, including her book club. But she won't surrender without a fight in this blood-soaked tale of neighborly kindness gone wrong. So this can't be as well? It's also campy. Okay. It's also campy, but there are scenes that are actually scary. Whereas My Best Friend's Exorcism, there were scenes that were slightly scary, but were so over the top that it kind of took away from the fear. So obviously, we know what we're getting into from the title, from the cover, from the blurb. It's a vampire story. So let me give you a quick rundown of the ladies in this book club. We have Patricia, our main character. She is a very stressed out housewife. She's doing her best. 
But honestly, her best just isn't really good enough. We have Grace, and she is an elegant and refined Southern lady, and she's also, like, the perfect housewife. We have Mary Ellen. She is from the North, and she's tough as nails. We have Slick. (laughs) That's not a name. It's not a name. Grady Hendrix. You had Glee in My Best Friend's Exorcism, and you have Slick in this one. These sound suspiciously made up. And Slick is super religious. And then you have Kitty. And Kitty is an absolute motherfucking delight. I love her. Her family is like old money, but the money is running out. She's super loud. She's super opinionated. And she's super great. So let's talk about the night that Patricia is attacked. So the talk of book club that night before she goes home is that at their neighbor, Mrs. Savage's house, there was a white van parked outside and no one recognized the white van. And it's like a all that had free candy sprayed on the side kind of white van. Okay. I'm picturing it. Yeah. White van, no windows. Yeah. I see some of those running around town. Yeah. Fun fact. I actually learned most of the time those vans work for funeral homes and they're used to pick up corpses from hospitals and from like homes where people have died. And so the reason there's no windows is because it's a van full of bodies. Not that that's much more comforting, but <laughs> but it's what they are. Anyway, but that's basically it. They were talking about the van. They're very concerned about it. And I honestly love that vibe because I grew up in kind of a Stepfordy sort of neighborhood in the Deep South. And like the nosiness of Southern ladies is so real. And I just like how well that was captured. But anyway, that night after book club, Patricia gets home and she's taking out the trash and she sees Mrs. Savage behind her trash cans. And she's like, what are you doing, Mrs. Savage? Mrs. Savage is eating a raccoon alive. Oh, poor raccoon. Your eyebrows went like two inches up your forehead when I said that. It's great. There's blood everywhere. It's super gnarly. Mrs. Savage is like covered in blood. And so then she attacks Patricia and Patricia runs away and she's able to make it to the porch. But then Mrs. Savage kind of tackles her and bites her earlobe off. And just in time to save the day, her husband shows up and like fights off Mrs. Savage and saves Patricia, yada, yada, yada. It's literally the only useful thing that he does. Otherwise, I hate her husband, as you will hear me talk about continuously. Jeez, that's an intense neighbor. Yeah, we start off strong. I know. Remember when our neighbor stole our trash can, though? (laughs) That was also rude. (laughs) I am reminded every single time I see her put two trash cans out by the curb. Anyway. Anyway. (laughs) So, as Patricia is recovering, she learns that Mrs. Savage ended up dying. So what does she do? She does what any well-bred Southern lady does, and she makes a casserole. And she takes it over to Mrs. Savage's house because she has heard that Mrs. Savage's nephew has been living there. So in true Southern lady style, she knocks on the door. And when no one answers, she just tries to open it. Sure, that seems reasonable. Just go into other people's houses. I never said that she made good life choices. (laughs) So she walks in, puts the casserole, like, she walks in, goes through the living room to the kitchen to put the casserole down. Like she just like traipses through this person's house. And then she's wandering around and she finds a bedroom and there's a guy, presumably the nephew, confirmed to be the nephew, but she doesn't know this at the time, on the bed and it doesn't seem like he's breathing and she can't find a heartbeat. So she decides to give him CPR. Okay. I mean, keep in mind, this is 90, so she didn't have a cell phone to be like, 911, there's a body. Even still, I feel like you don't walk into people's houses. You don't walk into people's houses. You don't walk into people's bedrooms. You don't give a sleeping person CPR. There's also probably a landline somewhere in that house. mm, mm, mm. Anyway, he wakes up. He's very angry. He's also very transparently sensitive to the sun and like bodily throws her out of the house. And I just want to come in here and say that I actually really appreciate that this book makes no attempt to keep what's going on a secret. Like, 
It's a vampire novel. You know, from the get-go, you know who the vampire is. There's no mystery surrounding it. It's just, you know, and you just kind of have the joy of watching the cast of characters trying to figure it out for themselves. And I think that it says a lot about the talent of an author that he's able to build the tensions that the characters are experiencing so high that you feel it, even though you know what's going on. So I just wanted to say that because I really admire it. And I think it says a lot about Grady Hendrix's ability to write. So over the course of a few more interactions, Patricia starts to befriend James Harris. He stops by the next night and apologizes for his behavior, that sort of thing. And eventually she invites him into her home because he happened to show up during dinner time one day. And so she's like, do you want to come join us? Again, I never said that she made good life choices. Then she goes so far as to invite him to book club one night, which by the way, is very fucking rude because she did not ask the other members first. She was just like, hey, want to join us for book club? Well, yeah, I don't know. I've never been in a book club. I really don't know what etiquette is. Uh, I have. And if anyone ever brought a random guest to book club, I would have been very upset. During that meeting of the book club, Patricia's mother-in-law, who is living with them because she's starting to go senile, walks in completely naked. Because her caretaker was trying to get her in the bath and she slipped away because she's a squirrely old lady. (laughs) Anyway, she claims that she knows James. She keeps calling him Hoyt and she starts screaming at him. And she's claiming that he had a part in ruining her father's life. So Patricia kind of apologizes profusely and corrals Miss Mary, who is the mother-in-law, back to bed. And Miss Mary is repeatedly saying, I have to find the photograph. I have a photograph somewhere I have to show you. We learn shortly later in a rare lucid period where Miss Mary is able to tell this story that apparently this man named Hoyt started a moonshine business with her father, but children started to disappear. And Hoyt ended up convincing the community to blame a black man for the disappearance of the children. So they kidnapped the black man and buried him alive. Oh, that's intense. It was in the twenties in the deep South. That isn't to say that that is right. Very wrong thing to do. But that's why the explanation is chosen. Yeah. Sure. And shortly after that, Hoyt vanishes. And Miss Mary's father felt so guilty that he killed himself. Oh. So Miss Mary has a lot of issues with this Hoyt person, who she thinks is James Harris. But no one's really sure because she's going senile. But of course, we know because he's so clearly a vampire. Shortly after, both of Patricia's children see someone on the roof of their garage as they're being put to bed that night. And we have this really harrowing scene that's it's intense to read. It's not necessarily the scariest, but it's very like pulse-pounding thriller where she can hear him and she's kind of scrambling around the house to make sure all the doors are and windows are locked. And she's trying to protect her children and she's trying to call the police, but then her phone line goes out. And that's when Patricia decides that she's going to run to the neighbor's house which is when we learn that the next door neighbors are the family of the girl who was possessed in my best friend's exorcism. But when she opens the door, James is right there. Like she collides with him because he was just checking on her. Hmm. Okay, girl. <laughs> Later on there, I'm going to talk about a lot of this book. Later on, Patricia and Carter, her husband go to a party. And while they're at the party, Miss Mary is home with the caretaker, Mrs. Green. And Miss Mary finds the photo that she was talking about. And that's when the rats attacked. Wait, the rats? Yes. Like in the house? Yes. Gross. Um, so Miss Mary lives in a, the basement apartment of the house. And all of a sudden, just this massive horde of rats is trying to get in. So they're scratching at the doors and they're scratching at the windows and they're like coming up through the toilet. Like, it's very horrifying. And I actually have never read like an animal horror book. And I've definitely never read like a swarm style book. And I never really had an interest until I read this scene. And I was like, okay, I can see why this is scary. If I were in a room and the only exit I could hear 
hundreds of rats on the other side. That would scare the shit out of me. Yeah, it's pretty scary. So that left me kind of interested in that. Yeah. It's kind of also like Bram Stoker-y Dracula, right? Because vampires having command over vermin is a thing. Anyway, eventually Mrs. Green is able to save Miss Mary from this horde of rats. So the next day, Patricia and Kitty go on a trip to go and see Mrs. Green to thank her. And Mrs. Green lives on the other side of the train tracks. Not literally, but like metaphorically. Okay. On the other side of the train tracks. Spoiler alert, because it's the early 90s in the deep south. She lives in the neighborhood where no white people live. Just like Patricia lives in the neighborhood where no people of color live. So, Patricia and Kitty go to this neighborhood. And as they're getting out of their car to walk up to Mrs. Green's house, they hear girls who are skipping rope to a rhyme about a man sneaking into their bedroom and drinking their blood. And Mrs. Green confirms that it is real. People have been growing really irritable and losing their appetite, and then they die. And Mrs. Green says that before all of this happens, they talk about seeing a white man standing in the woods waving at them. Which, by the way, I don't care what neighborhood you're in. If there's a random white dude standing at the edge of some woods waving at you, don't go and talk to him. Yeah. Yeah, that's creepy. Just don't. And then also, a mysterious white van has been seen driving around the neighborhood. So Mrs. Green has taken down the license plate number. And Patricia confirms that license plate number with Grace, who also takes down license plate numbers. And I have never met somebody who takes down the license plate numbers of unfamiliar cars. But apparently that's a nosy Southern lady thing. I could see that. So it's at this point that Patricia remembers that on the day that she met James, the day that she was thrown out of the house, she saw a woman from a cleaning company who later wound up missing. And so Patricia and Mrs. Green decide to go and see a woman whose daughter is exhibiting these symptoms, the irritability and the lack of appetite, but the daughter is missing. So Patricia takes a flashlight and she searches the area and she finds the white van. So she goes around to the back and she looks into the window and she sees James feeding off of this little girl whose name is Destiny. Now let me tell you how James feeds because the cover here is actually deceptive. James does not have two things. His jaw unhinges and opens very wide and a proboscis comes out. Do you know what a proboscis is? No. So you know moths that have like the little tongue that curls up and they drink nectar with it? Sure. That's a proboscis. Okay. And he attaches it to a femoral artery, which for those of you who haven't read enough vampire erotica where cunnilingus and blood drinking often go hand in hand, that is the artery that runs up the inner thigh. So his proboscis attaches to the femoral artery and that's how he feeds. That's not very sexy. No, it's really not. It's like unhinges, bug parts come out of your mouth, and then you're feeding. Gross. Anyway, Patricia runs away and calls the police. But of course, because it's the part of town where people of color live, the police take their time getting there. And by the time they get there, the white van is gone. Surprise, surprise. So Patricia comes to terms with what James is actually by going to a bookstore and buying vampire novels (laughs) and reading them. That made me really happy. It only could have been better if she had gone to the library. What she decides to tell the book club ladies is that he is dealing drugs to kids. (laughs) Because she doesn't think that they'll believe vampires, but it's the early 90s, say no to drugs. Dare. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure I have like five dare t-shirts at my parents' house in my old closet. Anyway, so then Patricia and the girls are fully prepared to go to the police. And I think it is Mary Ellen's husband, maybe, who has a connection. One of the husbands does. And they're, he's going to help. But then James shows up with all of the husbands. And they've formed a good old boys club. And they're not going to turn in James. And that's when we get to kind of see a glimpse of these ladies' personal lives. We see Patricia's husband's obsession with appearance. 
We see Kitty's husband kind of just being naive. We see Grace's husband being very frighteningly angry, like super bad rage issues. And actually later after this night, there's a very brief scene between Patricia and Grace where Grace is clearly covering up a black eye. And we see that Slick's husband has this very Old Testament view of marriage, like you're supposed to obey me kind of view. We left those out of our house. Well, I mean, if that's the type of agreement you have. Anyway, it's very uncomfortable. But the worst part, which is really intentionally done, because Grady Hendrix even says in the beginning, in his introduction, that he kind of wanted this to be a sort of social commentary of the housewife from the 90s. The husbands force their wives to apologize to James. And then force their wives to invite James to join the book club permanently. Shortly thereafter, everyone thinks Patricia is crazy and won't talk to her anymore. So she basically loses all of her friends. And then she finds out that Destiny, the girl that she saw James feeding on, dies. So Patricia takes an entire bottle of Prozac. Huh. Her son is the one who finds her. And then in the hospital, her husband gets like super toxic and super gaslighty. And makes it all her fault. And then very intentionally says things to turn their children against her. And make her children hate her. It's really gross. Then we jump three years. So quick update as to what has happened in the past three years. Book Club has turned into this big like neighborhood society event. With like a hundred attendees every single time. Which, gross. Awful. I like my book club small. (laughs) Um, And also, James has managed to help basically every single person in this community become very successful. So everyone loves James. Weird. It's almost like helping someone start a moonshine business. Anyway, Patricia has a moment where she hallucinates or just sees a ghost. And she sees and hears Miss Mary, who has died in the three-year period, tell her to go and visit Mrs. Green. So she does so, and it turns out, without saying something at any point in the past three years, Mrs. Green has the photo that Miss Mary had been talking about. So Patricia sees it and sees that Hoyt is, in fact, James, and they are one and the same. So they hatch a plan. So Mrs. Green volunteers to pick up a shift with the local cleaning service to clean James's house, and she sneaks Patricia in. And Patricia wants to have a third person help them. So she invites Slick. And she gives Slick all of the evidence that they have. Newspaper articles about the missing kid and the picture. And Slick asks if she can keep it so she can prey on it. Okay. But then she doesn't show up at the house. Which is suspicious. But Patricia still searches the whole house. And she goes into the attic And in the attic, she finds a suitcase that's very heavy, and she opens it, and it's the woman that was coming from the cleaning company the day she met James, who disappeared. It's her corpse. Chopped up and shoved in a suitcase. But then James comes home. Because someone, Slick, has tipped him off. Snitches get stitches. (laughs) I shouldn't say that, because actually what happens to Slick is so terrible, and it doesn't even... It shouldn't even happen to people who snitch. So Patricia hears James searching the house and she tries to find a place to hide. And this is the scariest part in the entire book. She ends up hiding under a mountain of Mrs. Savage's old clothes because it's the only place that she can think of that maybe James won't look when he starts to search the attic because she can't just hide behind a piece of furniture. So then there is literally an entire chapter where he's in the attic, like calling after her, searching around, rummaging. She is having roaches crawling all over her body. She ended up, there was a rat's nest inside of the pile of clothes. So she has rats crawling all over her. There's a point where a roach is trying to crawl in her ear. And for any... (laughs) For any listener who is not from and has never been to the Deep South, when I say roaches, I do not mean the little bugs 
that you get when you have an infestation. I'm talking about palmetto bugs, which are about, I would say like an inch and a half long, wouldn't you? An inch and a half long. They fly. They're huge. They're terrible. Well, someone calls the house and James leaves immediately. And then Kitty shows up. She was the one who called the house to lure James away. So she shows up to tell Patricia that she's safe. And as soon as Patricia gets out of the pile of clothes, she tries to get the roach out of her ear, but she can't get a hold of it. So she just reaches in her ear and smashes it and then pulls the remains out of her ear. Gross. It's horrifying. So right when Patricia gets home from all this, Slick calls and she's sobbing and she's saying that she didn't make a sound. Like, she's just, like, crying and repeatedly saying, like, I didn't make a sound. He told me not to, so I didn't make a sound. So Patricia goes over to learn what happened, and it turns out that James showed up and raped Slick. Whoa. Yep, it escalates quickly. That's why I said, even snitches don't deserve this, because no one deserves to be raped, no matter what they're wearing or what they're doing or how much they've had to drink. Anyway, so he shows up and he rapes Slick, The description of it is actually pretty graphic, if that is a trigger for you. And then he took all of the evidence. And in, like, a really nasty scene, Patricia is helping clean Slick up. And, like, black, I guess, like, black semen. It just says black ooze, but I guess it's supposed to be semen. But it's black, is, like, dribbling out of her vagina. Yeah. So, yeah. Great book. Later on, Patricia catches James feeding on her daughter. So clearly, like, James is just terrorizing everybody. Because Slick is now in the hospital with an autoimmune issue that the doctors can't figure out what it is. James has been feeding on her daughter. James tries to call the next day after being caught. It's weird. And tries to explain that he has a weird disorder where he has to filter his blood through someone else in order to survive. So please don't kill me. Please let me keep feeding on your teenage daughter. (laughs) So the ladies hatch a plan. Patricia volunteers to be the bait because James has had this weird attachment to her the whole time. I'm not going to tell you the details of the final showdown because it is such a popular book. Also, like, it was really fun to read, but it wouldn't really be fun to, like, just rattle off the blow-by-blow details of it. But after James's defeat... Everyone's lives seem to go back to normal, except for Slick, who is still dying. And she knows that after she dies, another vampire will be born. So she asks to be cremated. That's just my only, like, I guess, point as resolution for what happens to her. And Patricia, at the absolute end, decides to divorce Carter because fuck him. And that's the Southern Book Club's guide to slaying vampires. Hmm. So you liked it, obviously. Yes, I would give this book five out of five bloody peaches. I honestly thought it was a nonstop delight, and I really can't think of anything that I would change. It was campy, but there were scary parts, and it was just, it was perfectly well done. That sounds nice. I like vampire books, so. You seem like you're still slightly in shock. No, it sounds good. Sounds like... There's a lot going on. So, tell me, would you die if you were in Yummy? Um, I probably would. I mean, there's a lot going on. There's a ton of zombies at one point in that movie. I mean, basically almost everybody in the hospital. And then also, I didn't mention this either, but the military surrounds the hospital because they have this response to it. And the way that Oksana dies is she runs out and the military is screaming something they can't understand. She can't understand what it is and what they're yelling. You later learn because Daniel sort of translates is that anybody who tries to come out will be shot. And Oksana is like running to them for safety and they gun her down. So it's hard to escape. So I would probably say yes. Between the zombies and the sort of weird Eastern European military, I probably would get killed. God. I'm just being real here. <laughs> anyway, would you die in a Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires? Yeah, Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Honestly, no. Technically, because 
It seems like James only feeds on characters who we are led to assume are assigned female at birth, which I am not. So no. However, if he were to expand his horizons, most likely, because as you know from personal experience, I am a sucker for a charming smile. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's all we've got for today. Uh, You can find us on Twitter or Instagram or Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us at Second to Die Pod at gmail.com with questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions on videos or books to watch slash read. And also, I will only assume that Cole is going to post a picture of that monkey on social media. So if you want to see that creepy monkey, you can check that out as well. I'm so excited. I will probably try and find a way to pose the cover of Southern Book Club's guide with the monkey so I can just kill two birds with one picture. That being said, just remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.